Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And an opportunity to meet one of the world's great explorers today. She's Helen Thayer. And she has walked across the Sahara, also the Gobi Desert, Kayak 2 remote Amazon rivers, discovered three unknown species. She was the first woman to walk and ski solo to the world's poles. She's been honored by the White House and the National Geographic. Also, she's lived with Arctic wolves. Those are just a few of the points on her list of accomplishments. And uh, she goes around the country speaking to uh, children through uh, something called uh, Adventure Classroom and uh, spoken to over a million children with that. Helen Thayer, great pleasure to uh, welcome you to Access Utah. It's my pleasure. So as I read that list of accomplishments, does that seem overwhelming, satisfying? Uh, What goes through your mind? Well, these are things that I've wanted to do for Adventure Classroom. Um, Adventure Classroom is very important to my husband and I, and we try to bring the four corners of the world to students through assemblies, classroom work, and so forth. And so it's necessary that we travel to the the four corners, the far-off places, live with indigenous cultures and so forth. So we see it as nothing extraordinary. It's just a way to get what we need to get done. So what is your goal with Adventure Classroom? Well, we use our expeditions as a vehicle to take the message of setting goals, planning for success, being the best you can be at all times, don't give up on yourself, just to encourage kids to set their own goals and and look to their futures and be confident and get out there and go for it. And don't listen to the naysayers, don't don't listen to the, the negative, so much negativity that's around us these days. Just be positive and go. I understand that uh, you had a very important moment on a mountaintop in Tajikistan where this kind of crystallized for you. This is what you wanted to do. Uh, You'd done expeditions before, an accomplished mountain climber and uh, explorer, but uh, maybe you could tell us about that experience. Well, I had been a high-altitude mountain climber for... Well, I started climbing mountains when I was nine and um, with my parents and Sir Edmund Hillary, who was a close friend and neighbor of ours. And then um, I continued on from there, and uh, I represented three countries in international track and field and then became United States National Luge Champion. But at heart, I was a high-altitude climber. And then one day I was standing on top of uh, the summit of peak communism. It's not, it's not quite 25,000 feet high, about 24 and a half thereabouts. And I realized as I stood on that summit and I could see into China on one side, Afghanistan on the other, and Tajikistan on the other, and I realized then it was time for me to share my experiences with other people. It just seemed important to me at that moment that I should share these beautiful sights and the things that I was experiencing. And so um, I eventually, well, on the way down the mountain, I, I thought of, of, the, of an educational program for kids K through 12. And then when I returned home, I... Um, gave the program the name Adventure Classroom and decided my first program would be a solo walk to the Magnetic North Pole. So the idea is you plan an exploration with the goal of going out, experiencing this, taking photographs and coming back and sharing it with children? Yes, I came home from that uh, climb with all of these plans in my head and I chose a Magnetic North Pole because it's a very difficult place to, and I did this in 1988 at age 50, so navigational gear wasn't what it is now. I really had 
you might call me a pioneer of sorts because I had to design my own sled. There were none available on the market at all. No one to advise me how, even how it should be made. And so I had to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, which was all part of the educational process. And then uh, I chose to go alone, on foot, no resupply, pulling my own sled. And then that was so successful, I returned home and then began the process of thinking, um, well, what else can I bring from the rest of the world into the classroom? Because the first program was so successful. Could you tell us a bit more about that solo uh, trip to the magnetic North Pole? I'm reading from uh, Lisa Schenker's article. She she covered your uh, uh, talk to the children in Salt Lake City. Uh, I'll just quote from her story. Helen Thayer faced three polar bears on the first day of her expedition to the magnetic North Pole. Nine of her fingers numbed from frostbite. A fierce Arctic storm swept away all of her food, save a small bag of walnuts. Well, it was a very tough journey, to say the least, because I was alone on foot down on the ice with the polar bears, um, living basically on their terms, not mine. Um, and no woman had, um, had made this journey before. No woman had even attempted to, be, to walk to this pole solo. And so I really had to call on my own outdoor experience. And it was uh, very difficult because of the pressure ridges, the polar bears, the weather, the broken ice. But um, I knew that if, and I had trained for two years for it, especially for this journey. And so I was well prepared and I had planned everything right down to the last detail. And so I felt so well prepared. I, I really knew that in spite of the difficulties, I could make it through. And I did. But there were some really scary moments along the way. Tell us about one or two of those. Well, uh, the first, of course, was when I left, took that first step. When I left base camp, took that first step, I knew that I had not yet met a polar bear in the wild. Now, as part of my planning, I had lived with the Inuit people for some time, the masters of Arctic survival. They know all there is to know about polar bears and so forth. But in spite of learning, listening, training, I knew I really had to stand up to that first bear and see if I could do it. Well, the first day there were no bears, I saw lots of tracks. And then, now, at I must explain, too, that I was the only human, but I did have my polar bear dog. I bought a fella I called Charlie from the Inuit. His job was to keep the polar bears out of the village and keep the humans safe. So a perfect companion for me. And I named him Charlie, and off we went. And, of course, he loved those tracks. He put his big black nose down in them and tried to follow them. Well, there was no way I was going to follow a polar bear tracks. I would tell Charlie, I know what's on the other end. No way. And so, but it wasn't until the next day, I was taking my tent down around 7 in the morning to start the next day's journey, and suddenly Charlie, who was tethered to my sled, began to growl. And I looked up, and there was my first bear. And she had two cubs at her side, and she was growling. She was very angry that I was there at all. This was not the Arctic Welcoming Committee at all. And I stood there trying to remember everything that I'd been taught. Keep passive eye contact. Don't turn your back, they told me. Don't take a single step backwards and don't run because I'd never win the race. Well, I was able to stand and remember what I'd been taught and it worked. And of course, Charlie was, um, he went into his defensive mode to defend me and leaping high in the air, snarling and growling. And so the whole thing was working. Charlie was doing his job as I knew he should and I was doing mine as I had been taught. And then about 30 minutes, the bear, she turned, took her two cubs away, disappeared into the rough ice. I never saw her again, but now I knew 
that although I can't tell you how scared I was, I mean, I, my heart was beating so so loudly and so fast, it's about leaped out of my chest. But in spite of that extreme fear, I was able to remember what I'd been taught. So now, of course, I knew I'd passed that final test, and I, now I knew that I could do it. And I knew how scary it was. And I was very afraid through this journey many times because I met seven bears um, individually up close and uh, up close and personal, way too personal sometimes. But now I knew I could do it. Uh, I was just going to surmise, and you've said it, you, you must have been frightened. You've, you've been taught, you have Charlie, but still, is it going to work? I'm sure that's going through your mind. Well, that's right. You don't know until the final test comes, and this is such extreme fear because I'm well aware that the last sound I could hear in my life would be the crunch of my own skull because that's how polar bears kill their victims. And polar bears do hunt and kill humans sometimes. So I knew I knew of the danger. I, was, I wasn't out there just being totally oblivious and being some dummy, oh, I think I'll walk to the pole today, and oh, well, the polar bears, they're nice cuddly pets, aren't they? I knew different than that. That's why I had to plan and train so completely. I couldn't leave anything to chance. But now, having passed that final test, and, I, and describe the fear, I don't think there's any way that I can truly ever describe that to anyone. Uh, there's no words to describe the full extent of it. And if I hadn't taken control of myself and basically walked through that door of fear to the other side, I could have panicked and lost control. And, of course, that would have done me in. And a dog like Charlie is, you know, there's a huge difference in size, but a dog like Charlie really can be effective against a polar bear? Oh, definitely. These dogs, they choose themselves, basically. They, the dogs are fed seal meat, frozen seal meat. And the polar bears, of course, this is their food, and they can't, they smell it from a great distance. They come in and try to take it away from the dogs sometimes, and there's a lot of trouble, a lot of fighting. Some dogs just don't survive. Others do survive. But Charlie, when he would race to a polar bear, he would approach head on until the last minute. He would whip his body around to the side and suddenly be at the back of the bear and grab his heel and hang on. And if you can just imagine some a very powerful 100-pound animal determined to defend his owner there uh, and hanging on to that Achilles tendon back there, you can imagine how that bear must feel. What were some of the other barriers uh, that you uh, experienced in, in that trip? Well, um, at one stage, I was um, engulfed in an enormous storm. The first time I was engulfed in a storm, winds, according to my wind meter, were around 70 miles an hour. And then... The ice began to break up all around my tent. And, of course, my worry at that point was, would the ice break beneath my tent and drop Charlie and I and my tent into the ocean? And being alone, and in those days, remember this was in 1988, I didn't have a floatable sled or an immersion suit or, or any of the wonderful things that I could have now that simply didn't exist at that time. And so if I'd gone into the water, it would have been very difficult to survive. And I had to sit a day and a half in that tent, hoping that that ice would stay intact beneath my tent floor. And the ice was breaking up. I was actually in the midst of a major ice breakup. And you could be ground into little pieces just like the ice. But the ice underneath my tent held fast. And a day and a half later, the winds went down. I was able to step out of my tent, and all around me, the ice was just a mess. Lots of open water. 
So then I had to take my ski pole, push the little pieces of ice together to make these bridges from one ice pan to another and very carefully pull my sled across and then carefully pull Charlie's sled across, make another bridge, push the ice together, pile more on top to make it strong enough and then pull my sled again. And I did this for half a day because I knew if I could go about five miles north, then I would be on thicker ice according to my charts and so forth. Did you have GPS, or was this before GPS? I had the last of the experimental GPSs. Um, the U.S. Marine Corps loaned it to me. And, um, of course, it was a big, compared to today's units, it was a big clunky thing. It ran on alkaline batteries. So that, um, the procedure for turning it on was, first of all, you spend considerable time praying that the, the thing will turn on. <laughs> And then you turn it on, you pray once more that the memory will not disappear, then you quickly take the numbers down, turn it off really fast to save your batteries, and on you go. So I just could only use it at, at strategic moments. Now, I could see myself coming home from an expedition like this and saying, uh, wow, that's quite an accomplishment, but then thinking about everything that could have gone wrong and and then never leaving the house again. <laughs> Obviously, that's not your personality. No, that's not my personality. So I came home, and okay, uh, that was that was done. Glad I did it. Um, and, of course, the, when I came home, my husband and I immediately planned to do the same journey, but together to celebrate our 30th anniversary. So we did return. I did return to the pole four years later, walking, skiing, pulling my own sled. My husband pulled his sled. Again, no, no resupply or anything like that. Took the same route that I took. But we've been through some very scary moments in uh, expeditions, but we don't dwell on them. We're just thankful to have got through them and and be able to come home, tell a story, write the book, or and present programs and, and teach kids and, and even adult audiences. I speak to audiences uh, of all ages all over the country and sometimes overseas just to teach people what we saw, what we learned and so forth and encourage people to set their goals. And then we're off and planning for the next expedition. And the negative parts, such as the dangers, well, that part of what we do and that's part of what we plan around um, planning for survival is very important on this part of access utah in fact the entire hour we're talking with helen thayer she is one of the world's great explorers named one of the great explorers of the 20th century by national geographic and national public radio she's the first woman to travel alone to the magnetic north pole we've just been hearing some of those adventures also the first woman to walk across the sahara desert First woman to walk across the Gobi Desert. She's kayaked uh, two remote Amazon rivers, discovered new species, among many other accomplishments. She talks about her adventures uh, to children and uh, tells about goal setting, careful planning, and then not giving up to reach your goals. She'll talk a bit about more about that in the next segment. And uh, coming up later in this hour, uh, she'll talk about an experience at nine years old. Um, climbing a mountain in her native New Zealand with her parents and their neighbor, Sir Edmund Hillary. We'll talk about him. Also, a, a car accident. Doctors told her she might never walk again. Her response, uh, a bit later, she walked across the Gobi Desert. More adventures coming up. Helen Thayer, our guest, and we'll return with this conversation following a brief break. 
Ever gone to your local casino only to find that they have replaced your favorite slot machine? There's a part of me that's a little cynical that thinks, oh, well, maybe I was winning too much, and there are other people as well who are winning on it, and it just wasn't in the best interest to keep that machine around. I'm Molly Wood. If you answered yes, you're not alone. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Tuesday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. On uh, Access Utah today, our guest is Helen Thayer, who's an explorer and uh, who uh, has many accomplishments, including uh, being the first woman to walk and ski solo to the world's poles. Uh, She's been honored by the White House and National Geographic, among uh, many other honors. Lived uh, with Arctic wolves, uh, has walked across the Sahara and Gobi deserts, kayaked to remote Amazon rivers, discovered unknown species, and uh, she talks to uh, children, has spoken to over one million children through uh, something she calls Adventure Classroom, in which uh, she uh, speaks with children about her adventures and uh, teaches them about goal setting and planning. She's our guest on Access Utah today, and uh, we are on tape in this uh, part of the program. Helen Thayer, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the detailed planning that goes into these things. How important that is? This is something I take it that you teach the children. You're quoted as saying, in fact, in your talk in Salt Lake City recently, this is in Lisa Schenker's article in the Salt Lake Tribune, quoting you, I very quickly found out that if you set a goal and don't have a plan, you're not going to make it. And you gave us some examples of the detailed planning that you do. Maybe you could elaborate on that. Well, uh, first of all, because the world is in such turmoil in various places, well, the first thing we do, we just look at a region and, and we decide now, will this be a good educational program? Can we bring back good images, notes, and to be able to present, is this something that we could present to students, K through 12, and to adult groups? And the answer is yes. So then we look at the political situation to make sure that we will live in the crossing of this particular region because in our experience, people with guns are far, far more dangerous than any polar bear ever could imagine. So once we pass that test, then we start into now which route should we take, which would be the most feasible way to do this. Then, of course, you've chosen the route. Now comes the equipment to get yourself across that route. And, of course, we're always on foot. We don't, for instance, in the uh, Sahara Desert and the Gobi Desert, we've crossed both of those deserts. We took two camels to carry our gear, but we didn't ride them. We're always on foot, like boots on the ground, basic expedition, low budget. We have no managers, no base camp. We're just very basic. Because one thing we tell kids is you don't need a million dollars to realize your dreams and goals. And, of course, um, the Kodura brand of fabric is a sponsor. They're tremendously helpful to us. They came on board with Adventure Classroom because they care about kids' education. So it's a perfect marriage, a perfect partnership between um, the Kodura brand and Adventure Classroom. And so with their support, then we're able to attend to the finances and the logistics, and then we, um, of course, take equipment made. Our equipment has to last. 
uh, because if we go unsupported, unresupplied, it's got to last from one end of that journey to the other. We can't go to the store halfway through and say, oh, hi, uh, I need a new pair of boots or something. So this is why, another reason why we go to Cordura, because of that fabric it lasts and we've been using it for 31 years now so on we go this is the choice of equipment and then we start choosing our food what sort of food is suitable we can't take my favorite peanut butter cups to the desert because they would melt Um, and then you can't take anything with caramel towards the polar regions because you can't chop it with an axe so everything has to be looked at closely to see if it will work from the equipment to the clothing and then the food and then of course the time it's going to take we have to figure out the quantities of food how will we get water if we were in the desert how will we get water and this is why in the Gobi Desert we had two camels one carried water and one carried the food and equipment and we had a small aeroplane the first time we have ever had resupply we had a small aeroplane a desert aeroplane the pilot would bring water to us every 20 days because in the, the Gobi Desert makes the Sahara looks like a, a swamp in many cases because there are no oases, no uh, real wells that you could really call a well. So, um, so these are the sorts of things we have to look at all the way through. What is the message that you want kids and adults to take away from something like Adventure Classroom or the other programs that you do? Well, we'd like them to take the message away that they look at us as uh, somewhat as role models. And then, of course, we say that age is no barrier to your dreams and goals. Um, I walked to the pole, the first woman to walk to any of the world's poles alone at age 50. Being first wasn't at all important. It was the educational program that was important and still is. And then at age 63, I became the first woman to walk across the Gobi Desert. Again, first wasn't important. The Gobi Desert was a wonderful educational program. And what we'd like the kids to take away, and adults as well, because I speak to a lot of adult audiences, is that set your goals, plan for success, and be, always be confident of your own abilities. And then, but in that planning, try to think of everything ahead of yourself, your equipment, your food, everything that must last all the way through. Remember, you can't go to the store and buy it if you go to these remote places. And then just keep going. Don't, don't stop. Just keep going and believe in yourself. But then I remind people, you don't have to walk to the pole. You don't have to walk to the Gobi to set a goal. There's goals all around us, all around us that we can set every day. And that every goal is just as important as the other. Do you get feedback from people? I imagine they'd be inspired by what you have to say. But the, the, these people tell you that the, these principles that you're talking about apply in you know any goal that they might set. Yes, they do. I get. I have a lot of feedback. Um, a lady uh, the other day from Canada had read one of my books, and she said she was so inspired. She had been fighting cancer. And the doctors had been telling her that if you think more positively and don't be so negative, you might make it. And she said, now after reading your book, and she had also heard me on NPR radio uh, not too long ago, she said, now I'm inspired. I'm going to fight the last bit. And she said, I will win because I know I will. And so that sort of thing inspires me in turn to try to always do a better job next time I go on an expedition, do a better job at my next speech, do a better job at my next book. You are quoted in an interview, interview with uh, Heidi Ahrens. This is on the, your website. Uh, 
which, uh, by the way, is HelenThayer.com, I believe. This is what you say. To learn how to be successful, you follow this simple formula, setting goals, planning, setting on the journey, and persevering. That's right. It's very important. And when things get tough, don't give up. Know that you can be successful. Uh, Bill and I, my husband and I, have got through many a scrape, many a close call, because we know, we know that we've trained, we know that we've researched, we know that we've done our homework, and we know that we'll be successful. Sometimes you have to take one step at a time. Um, When I walked to the pole, I lost my food and the fuel for my stove, so I couldn't uh, melt ice for water. And so I was living on five walnuts a day for seven days, a few mouthfuls of water, and I was suffering from severe dehydration and starvation, but I knew I could make it because I had trained for those conditions. And in the last five hours before I reached the pole, I counted my steps, one to a hundred, then started at one again. And every time I counted a step, I visualized myself standing at the pole. I could see myself there, and it pulled me on like a magnet. And that's a trick that we've used a lot over the years. When it's tough, we don't see ourselves as failing. We see ourselves at the end of the journey, victorious, we're there, we've done it. And that can apply to anything in school, as a student, in business, every day, just every day work around the home, anywhere, anywhere in our lives that technique can apply. Just always see yourself as successful. Have there been any times when you have had to decide, you know, I want to reach my goal, I want to persevere, I can see myself succeeding but to make the decision to survive or or get out of a dangerous situation you have to break it off i had to do that in the antarctic i was down there celebrating my 60th birthday with a solo journey and i walked about 500 miles and i was doing well i was making very good time each day i was pulling my own sled unresupplied and i was rather bored because i didn't have to look over my shoulder not once because there were no polar bears there and then suddenly the ice gave out beneath me and an ice bridge had fallen through and I, I, was, I was deep into a crevasse. And this is basically an unsurvivable situation. Being alone, you're not supposed to be able to get out of a crevasse this way. But to make a long story short, I did get out. I was still alive, but I was somewhat injured. And so now the decision was, should my pride take me on or should I use common sense, think about my injuries, think about the future of my body if I continued on and really damaged myself badly or should I go back and so I decided the sensible thing is 500 miles is enough going deep into a crevasse and eventually climbing out by the skin of my teeth basically that's enough I had pushed the envelope to the edge of the table I did not want the envelope to fall off so then I pressed my rescue button and they flew out picked me up and took me back to base camp and I've always been proud of that decision because my pride and my ego didn't push me on to do something that would be stupid do you think that sometimes happens with explorers maybe make that wrong decision because persistence is maybe part of that personality Well, sometimes the egotistical pride will get in the way of common sense, and I think we all have to be careful of that. It's very hard to judge a situation unless you're there, and so I'm very careful about that. But I think sometimes uh, people push on, and perhaps at high altitude, push on through exhaustion. Um, They might reach the summit. They have nothing to come back on. All they thought about was getting to the summit, not getting back. 
and then they die on the way down the mountain. And that's not very uncommon for mountaineers to die on the way down, on the descent. And instead, it's better to think, do I have the strength to get up there? Do I have something left to come down? And so we do have to be careful with that human egotistical pride to push on no matter what. We all have to remember we do have friends and family at home who are worrying and need for us to return. If you do something silly and because of your stupidity you might die, well then what have you done? You've really not... In fact, I always say if we don't come back alive in good shape to tell a story, we have not done a thing for Adventure Classroom on that expedition. You don't make a good educational program if you're dead. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Good principle. We are talking with uh, Helen Thayer on Access Utah today. Uh, She has many firsts and uh, many adventures, including discovering unknown species, also uh, crossing the Sahara and Gobi Deserts. She's the first woman to walk and ski solo to the world's poles and has lived with Arctic wolves among her many adventures. Through her program called Adventure Classroom, she has spoken to over one million children about her adventures and the lessons from those, and uh, still planning more adventures uh, with her husband. And uh, we'll be back with uh, Helen Thayer for the rest of the hour following a brief break. Uh, We'll be talking about uh, Helen Thayer's childhood in New Zealand, her neighbor, Sir Edmund Hillary, for example, and how she got into adventures. Also a program, a very interesting program called Enduring Cultures and uh, Walks Across Alaska with her husband. A couple of the topics we'll take up in the next part of our conversation. That's coming up following this brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 23rd Annual Moab Music Festival, presenting the Chick Corea and Bella Fleck duet, music from their Latin album The Enchantment, jazz, bluegrass, rock, flamenco, and gospel, Saturday, September 5th, 6 p.m. at the Red Cliffs Lodge Inn. Information at moabmusicfest.org. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Chrissy Hind is lead singer and songwriter of The Pretenders. Next time on Q, she'll join me to talk about growing up in Akron, Ohio, discovering punk in the UK, and the role drugs played in much of her early life. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Please join us Tuesday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome back to Access Utah. Thanks for staying with us through the break. Our guest this hour is Helen Thayer, a famed explorer. Uh, She's the first woman to walk and ski solo uh, to the world's poles. Uh, she is um, uh, famous for walking across Sahara and Gobi Deserts. She's kayaked two remote Amazon rivers, discovered three unknown species, and has been honored uh, by the White House and National Public Radio, among other honors. Uh, she uh, was the 2006 recipient of Explorers Club Vancouver Award and um, has been named one of the great explorers of the 20th century by National Geographic and 
National Public Radio, uh, several books, including Polar Dream, which uh, talks about her uh, trip solo to the uh, magnetic uh, North Pole that we've talked about earlier on the program. And uh, we thank Ms. Thayer very much for being with us. Perhaps to uh, begin this part of the conversation, Ms. Thayer, I want to take you back to an early exploration. This one, nine years old in your native New Zealand and uh, climbing Mount uh, Taranaki, if I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. Could you tell me about that? Well, my parents liked to climb mountains as a hobby, and Sir Edmund Hillary was a friend of the family, and I wanted to be just like these people. And I pestered my parents, and finally at nine years old, they said, okay, we'll climb Mount Taranaki. It's about eight and a half thousand feet high, and but the conditions were I had to carry my own pack. If I couldn't carry my own pack, then I didn't go. So I set off with the adults, and I was halfway up that mountain, and my legs were just totally leaden. And I thought at one point I couldn't take another step, but when I looked up at that beautiful summit on that clear day, I knew somehow I was going to get my body to that summit. Well, I struggled on, and that's where I learned to count steps, take my mind away from what was happening to my body, think of something else. And on I trudged, still carrying my own pack, and finally I did arrive on the summit. I could barely stand. I was so, so, so very tired. But I felt as I had conquered the whole world, and I knew that that would be my life. I wanted to live in the outdoors. Now, when I was, well, I was born in 1937. To save the listeners the math, I'm now 71. My husband and I call ourselves recycled teenagers. So <laughs> 71, we were going on about 25, I think. And I knew that my life would be in the outdoors. Now, at that time, there weren't, girls didn't have the options. A, a very independent outdoor girl did not have a lot of options. But my parents were very, very supportive, extremely, just wonderful people. And I grew up wanting to be like my parents. I was one of those very unusual teenagers. And so I continued on with my climbing, and then I was in sports, and I was just enamored, especially with mountains. It was just, they were so important to me. They just represented so much in my life, so much freedom and and just competing with yourself, to being your best and and having to step out. And then, of course, I very quickly learned the value of planning. A goal without a plan is only a dream. And I soon learned that one. And so then on I went. I was learning these lifetime lessons that were really setting me up so that by the time I reached age 50, I was ready to start a program um, adventure classroom. And that's why it worked out so well, because I had the early training. I wonder if you could tell me about Sir Edmund Hillary. He was a neighbor? Yes, and a very close friend. He was a very, very wonderful man. He passed on, I think it was um, just over a year ago now. But he was extraordinary. He was a kind man, um, a gentleman, um, modest and about his own achievements. And he really cared about kids. And he joined with my parents to encourage me. He could see that I could make a climber that I was an athlete, I came from a very athletic family. So he became my childhood mentor along with my parents and I so admired everything that he did and his modesty. And then he, he after he climbed Mount Everest, he formed a society, he and his wife, for his first wife, she was killed in an airplane accident eventually, but they formed the Nepalese society in which they raised a lot of money to send back to Nepal to build bridges and schools and hospitals. 
and just amazing, amazing work. And he was involved in that right up to his death. So here's a person that, in fact, New Zealand is sort of, when he passed on, it left a very empty spot in New Zealand. He was a very big part of the scene there. So did you know him, certainly your parents, before Everest? Oh, before Everest, yes, he climbed Everest in 19, May of 1953, and uh, we knew him before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, different when he came home than when he went. Perhaps mm-hmm. even more humble when he returned home. Mm-hmm. Because that brought him a lot of fame, but uh, but I guess uh, he just came back to New Zealand, continued climbing other mountains, and, and went on with his life. Yes, he did, and he became very involved with uh, Nepal and helping the people there. That was his goal then. And he, and of course in New Zealand, nobody referred to him as Sir Edmund, he was just Ed. Uh, it's not considered um, quite proper to um, refer to yourself, you know, with a knighthood. You, you might be knighted, but you, you know, it's not something that they take a lot of notice of in New Zealand. They're pretty basic, and, and so uh, he fitted the mould very well because he was a very modest man. So I guess he would have been Sir Edmund uh, if he was traveling in England, but but not so much in New Zealand. Oh no, he was just he was Ed in New Zealand, yeah, mm-hmm. beloved Ed. And uh, as you've said, a national institution in in New Zealand. Oh yes, oh yes, yes, he'll never be forgotten. So uh, important to have role models like that. Yes, it is. People that you can look at and say, "Hmm, I'd like to be like that." Um, See the things they do, learn from them. I think it's important, and uh, I think that uh, this spurs my husband and I to go out and try to be the best we can on our expedition so that we can bring back, as we call it, the good stuff from an expedition to show kids and adult audiences. You run your life, uh, you set your goals, you plan, and don't give up on yourself. You can do it, because Bill and I regard it, and we are, we're just ordinary people. We might have some rather unusual goals, and we might have to extend ourselves way out there at times, but um, I'm five foot three, and I'm 71 years old, and having a great time with life, And uh, but just ordinary person. Um, just basically, I believe I found my way at a very young age. That's the secret, I think. I'm wondering, you climb mountains, that was your passion, you know, even before you set out on Adventure Classroom and, and setting out these adventures to then come back and talk to children about. Your husband had a, a dangerous profession. It was a bush pilot, right? Yes, helicopter pilot. He survived 13,000 hours, and um, every one of them was quite dangerous, some more than others. He knew what it was like to live on the edge. He's a goal setter and very persistent and a good planner and he retired to join me in my work for Adventure Classroom and so we have been now married 48 years and we have uh, got we've figured now we've got it all figured out <laughs> and we make a good team out there we're very comfortable in each other's presence uh, when things are getting rough we and, and it's getting tough we we just automatically do our job and, and get it done he's a very optimistic person also and so it's really we have developed excellent teamwork, which allows us to get the work done, get the job done, and make more plans. What I was wondering, you share this, uh, I guess, proclivity for putting yourself on the line in, in dangerous situations. Is that personality? Well, neither one of us go out there and deliberately defy the odds. And if you live, well, gosh, that would be great. If I don't, well, that's okay, too. 
And I do know some mountain climbers that have that attitude, and whoa, that's not for us. I call myself a basic chicken. Now, I've been a ski instructor but a mountaineering instructor for many years, and I tell my students, you need to attend to your technique. You need to practice the basic techniques every spring before you get out on your big climbs because that's your insurance policy. I, I don't, and I'm on a big climb, I'm usually just about most times the first one to call for a rope. And I'm real fussy about those sorts of things because I know that those are sorts of things that keep me alive. I'm reading here uh, one of the talks you give, quitting was not an option. You talk about being the first woman to walk the entire 1,600 miles across the Gobi Desert. And it says here that after a serious car accident, you were told you might never walk again. Is that true? That's right. Uh, We were rear-ended at very high speed. We were stopped in traffic and suddenly somebody hit us and um, it caused severe leg damage, especially to my left leg. And they couldn't figure out what to do about it and it just was easy for people to say, you know, the medical profession to say, well, you know, at your age, uh, don't worry about it. It's time for you to sit down anyway and because you're not going to use that left leg, you can't walk distances anymore. Well, that seems so ridiculous to me and my husband was very supportive. So we had to work very hard to find the right person to put me back together and he did a fantastic job of putting everything back together and and hey presto I'm back to being just as good as I ever was but I wasn't quite put back together when I walked across the Gobi Desert I limped and I was in a great deal of pain a lot which is why we had to put in 15 to 18 hour days to make up for my bit slower speed but I got it done because I knew you see, I first thought of walking across the Gobi Desert when I was 13 years old, when I first heard of the Gobi in the classroom in New Zealand, the geography lesson. And I knew that one day I was going to go to that fascinating place. But, of course, Mongolia was closed for 70 years due to communism. Finally, communism collapsed. The borders opened. Then we were given the opportunity to get the special permit to walk across the Gobi Desert We had to have a special permit because we were walking very, very fast south along the Chinese border. And uh, the Mongolians were quite nervous about us doing that. But we had to go deep into the Gobi. There's a tourist route that will hit the northern reaches of the Gobi at a certain town called Dazalangad. But it's not the real Gobi. We had to go deep into the desert to live with these people who were still living that centuries-old lifestyle. And so it was, you might say, a 50-year-old dream and so when the car accident occurred, it was, should we wait a year? Well, we didn't know if the borders would be closed again because it's such an unstable area. And then our dream would go away. And so we decided, well, you know, I said to my husband, let's go for it because I know somehow I can do it, limp and all. And we did. And he said, okay, I, I'm with you. And if it gets too tough, then we'll just have to stop and call it a day and try it another time. So that was agreed on, but I made it all the way across, 1,600 miles, and sometimes I wonder just how did I do that, but I did it, and I'm glad I did. And uh, then that experience became a uh, one of your books, uh, several books uh, that uh, Helen Thayer has written. On Access Utah Today, our guest is Helen Thayer, one of the world's foremost explorers. She's been named one of the great explorers of the 20th century by National Geographic and National Public Radio, honored at the White House. 
also uh, is the first woman to travel alone to the magnetic North Pole, first woman to walk across the Sahara Desert, over 4,000 miles, first woman to walk across the Gobi Desert, we've just talked about that, kayaked 1,200 miles of two remote Amazon rivers, and has spoken to over a million school children with her project, Exploration Classroom, and uh, very pleased to have Helen Thayer on the program today. Before we uh, close, have about uh, five or six minutes left in our conversation. I, I want to talk about uh, another program that you have with your husband, Enduring Cultures. And uh, Susan Hauser, in a uh, article for Alaska Airlines magazine, May of 2008, by the way, this is uh, at the website, HelenThayer.com. I'll just quote this. The site would have startled anyone, but in this case, it was a few residents of an isolated native village far in the north of Alaska who witnessed the unusual scene. One day in 2006, they looked up to see a man and a woman emerging from the woods. The two were on foot and carried hefty packs on their backs. They were hardly threatening. Neither was much more than five feet tall. What's more, the Caucasian couple appeared to be about as old as the village elders. One of the elders was summoned to see what he could make of these unexpected visitors. You came by Snowgo or Snowmobile, he asked. The visitors said no. Dog team, again, no. This is an expedition up over the Brooks Range on foot. Tell us about that. Well, that poor man was quite astonished. And when he suddenly learned that we'd actually walked over the Brooks Range, he was just astonished that anybody would do that because the Inuit people don't do that. They would go by snow machine or dog team and for and especially two Caucasians and Bill's five foot five, I'm five foot three, so we didn't look anything spectacular at all. And so he was very astonished, but he certainly respected us. He looked us up and down silently and uh he just had so much respect for us then because we had done something that he hadn't done and wouldn't do. And of course it was a silent respect. The look was respectful rather than a lot of words because these people don't they don't fill in a lot of gaps as we do with conversation. But it was an experience, a moment or two that we will never forget. For that man just to respect us in that way because they are in their own way. I mean, they are just really wonderful people. They live in a very difficult climate and they they have to survive up there and it's tough. So to have that man's uh admiration that was an approval that was very special to us so it started in 2006 as understand it enduring cultures um uh, with the uh, university of alaska fairbanks so you walk from village to village and uh to visit these villages gather information yes we've uh, trekked oh hundreds of miles in alaska northern part of alaska especially just gathering information about climate change and the kids in the schools and all these sorts of things. In fact, we're now gathering more information from more schools to bring into a kid-to-kid talk so that the kids in the schools can communicate with kids around the world. And then um, this next October, November, we'll be in Africa and Tanzania. We're going into the very remote place away from the tourist routes to live with the Maasai, uh, the Maasai is the correct pronunciation. And again, we'll see their tiny school, we'll live with them, we'll learn their ways. And uh, the Kodura brand is um, helping to finance the journey and um, encouraging us to bring all this information back for our Enduring Culture program. And then after that, we go back to Sahara to live with um, the Berber tribe. And this will be again with support from Kodura. But then after that, we've decided that we will go into the High Atlas Mountains to live with the High Atlas Berber tribe. 
Um, there's a lot of climate change going on in these places. It's um, having a profound effect on their ancient lifestyle. And these three cultures, the Maasai, the Sahara Berber, and the Hyatlas Berbers are still living that ancient lifestyle, but it is being changed because of climate change. So we're going to live with these people, herd their animals, and just live their daily life with them and trek a few hundred miles because they are nomads and uh, bring back that program into the Enduring Culture program as well. How is climate change uh, affecting these cultures? Well, for instance, in Tanzania right now, in the northeast among the Maasai people, there's severe drought killing the cattle and the wildlife and some people. The Sahara Berbers are experiencing the lack of water. There's not much snow falling in the Atlas Mountains right now, so there's not much runoff to replenish those aquifers. And so these people are digging wells but finding no water. And this is having a terrible effect on their culture. And in the High Atlas Berbers, they're having a bad um, time with water also because it's not the snow melt that they depend on for their water supply. And then um, last summer, my husband and I kayaked another 1,000 miles in the Amazon, and we discovered places in the Amazon where flooding is taking place that has never happened before with profound effects. And then in the Pantanal, the, the world's largest wetland area, it's drying. They say the temperature's gone up several degrees in the last few years. And there's a danger of the Pantanal, the world's largest uh, wetland, turning into a sandy desert. And then, of course, the climate change in Alaska is really, really profound. So we're seeing this climate change in all these different climates, the rainforests, the polar regions, and the desert. It's all really the same thing is happening, but, of course, in different ways in different climates. Just a, a couple of minutes left and uh, just a couple of uh, parting questions. One, you feel like you're pushing the envelope in terms of the things you can do at what used to be considered advanced age? You're in your early 70s, your husband's early 80s, I think? Yes, I'm 71, Bill's 82. Well, no, there's the expression that the trails get steeper as you get older. <laughs> but no, the trails are still pretty level for us. And we have excellent health. We both have excellent health, no problems. And I know every day you get older and your body will break down to some extent, but we have felt, no, we don't have aches and pains. We haven't felt the effects of it yet. I think one day we will, if we're lucky enough to live long enough, I think we will have some effects of age. And then and one day, again, if we live long enough, the bodies will say, you need to slow down. But we haven't reached that point yet. And we're just, uh, you know, we're very encouraged with the way things are going, that we can continue to bring these um, programs back into schools and back to adults and encourage people to set their goals and, and continue our work in education and just keep going. Uh, we have no reason to stop at this point. There's nothing to tell us to slow up even. And finally, I wonder what you would say, a parting word to our audience, uh, lessons taken from your your life in the, these uh, explorations. Well, as I said before, Bill and I are ordinary people. We just set our goals. We don't put ourselves on a pedestal at, at any time. That's a very dangerous place to be. You might break your neck if you fall off, and you have no use to anybody at that point. But we see ourselves as ordinary people going out, having found a good path in life to set goals, plan for success. And we like to encourage other people, look, we're no different than you are. Perhaps the only difference is that we've found that path in life. 
but that path is there for all of us. We just need to look for it. We need to take a good look at ourselves and say, hey, I can do this. I've wanted to do such and such all my life. Well, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to plan for that. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to just say I want to anymore. I'm going to go and do it. Because that's one thing. Bill and I are not people who sit around saying, I think we should do that or I want to. We say, gee, I'd like to do that. Okay, let's figure out how to do that. Then we go and do it. Because a problem is only a problem until it's solved. All we have to do is plan and figure out a way to get that done, and, and it'll happen. And uh, as, as you say, be passionate about your goals. And I like this quote from one of your, the articles I've read. The worst thing you can do is plan and overplan, but never go out and do anything. You can't be uh, accused of, of doing that. <laughs> oh, we know people who they are going to plan for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and it's just as long as they're planning, they feel as though they're doing something. But planning is only one phase of getting something done. Our guest in IXSU today has been Helen Thayer. Uh, she was named one of the great explorers of the 20th century by National Geographic and National Public Radio, honored at the White House. First woman to travel alone to the magnetic North Pole, also first woman to walk across the Sahara Desert and the Gobi Desert and has kayaked 1,200 miles in two remote Amazon rivers. She has uh, discovered unknown species and uh, has lived with uh, wolves, among many other adventures. One of her programs, Adventures Classroom, which uh, she comes back from her adventures and uh, talks to school children about it and uh, talks about goal setting and planning. And uh, she recently was in Salt Lake City with uh, one of those uh, programs. Helen Thayer, it's been a pleasure to uh, talk to you. Well, thank you very much. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, welcoming students and alumni back to campus for the homecoming week September 28th through October 3rd. Information at usu.edu slash alumni. It's time for Utah StoryCorps, everyday people sharing their stories at the StoryCorps recording booth in Vernal during July of this year. Brothers Rich and Corey Etchberger discuss the mystery surrounding the death of their father, a national Vietnam War hero. Well, you know, Dad left in September of 67 to go to Southeast Asia. At that time, I'm sure that neither of us thought that that'd be the last time that we'd see him alive. What do you remember about the night that we found out about Dad's death? One of the things that I really remember, you know how we were raised when you answer the phone, handed the phone off to Mom, she just broke down crying, fell on the floor, and we found out that he'd been killed. I remember it was dinner time. She had just served a strawberry shortcake after dinner, and I remember you and I were pretty upset. I got to tell you, I haven't eaten strawberry shortcake since that day. We asked, you know, what happened to Dad? And she said, well, he died in a helicopter crash. I think this is where the real mystery starts. You know, Mom telling us that, and then that kind of being something that we believe for the next 20 years, which turns out not to be true, as we find out 40-some years later. Nine months after this, in January of 1969, we actually go to the Pentagon and attend a secret Pentagon ceremony for Dad. Mom receives it posthumously for him, gets awarded the Air Force Cross, which is the second highest award for valor. When we come home, you know, Mom takes that award and the accommodation and puts it in her closet and covers it up with a blanket. And we found out, actually, that wasn't the first time that she been to the Pentagon. Dad had been tapped for a secret mission to run a radar installation in Laos during the Vietnam War in 1967-1968. She signs these confidentiality agreements saying she won't divulge anything she knows until the mission's over and it's been declassified. On the night of March 10, 1968, the North Vietnamese actually scale the cliffs. How many of them get up there? About 30. 
So the North Vietnamese come over the top of the mountain and they kill the guys that are on duty almost immediately. Dad fights off the enemy. A couple of the guys get killed pretty quickly. There's four guys down there with him. A helicopter arrives and they lower a sling down and dad gets the two guys in the sling and gets them up into the helicopter. And then as he gets in the sling, he sees somebody else who's been playing dead on top of the mountain all night. The two of them get in the helicopter and one of the enemy empties his AK-47 to the bottom of the helicopter and one bullet goes in the dad. And so he dies before he can get the next air base. The Air Force did not want the publicity of a Medal of Honor. We find this out later that that was supposed to be a Medal of Honor ceremony in the beginning. But they decided to award the Air Force Cross and later on it would be upgraded to the Medal of Honor. And that, of course, didn't happen for 42 years. On July 6, 2010, I received a phone call and the woman on the other line said, this is Katie Johnson from President Obama's office. We hold for a call. So basically, I, I got the call that Mom should have got. He called and said that he'd like to invite the Etchberger family to the White House for a Medal of Honor ceremony. He knew a lot about the story, knew a lot about Dad, knew a lot about our family. Of course, the Medal of Honor ceremony in the East Room of the White House when he handed you that medal. Besides the fact of receiving the medal, just to meet all the Air Force personnel, Chief of the Air Force, the ranking Chief Master Sergeant, and to hear them talk about Dad as being some kind of uh, a real hero of the Air Force that inside people knew about. Once this is live on CNN, is on the news and so forth, we find those confidentiality agreements that Mom and Dad had signed. You know, she promised in those statements that she wouldn't say anything to anybody until she told it was okay to do so. She died in 1994, so she went through 30-some years of knowing the secret but not sharing it with us. These conversations were recorded at the StoryCorps booth in Vernal and will be archived at the Library of Congress. Support for this segment of the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Memory Mark, helping families to preserve and relive precious memories that help keep us connected to the people we love. Information at MemoryMark.com. Scientist Paul Ekman says he has a way to get to the truth. It's a simple computer program that he claims will teach you to peer into a person's soul. Waiting for the pitch. Okay. Oh! That was so fast. But you gotta be fast. I'm Jad Abumrad on the next Radio Lab. We go deep into the minds of people who lie and the people who try and catch them. Join us this morning at 10 for Radio Lab here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Ron Rash writes lyrical novels about grim Appalachian lives. His latest book features eco-terrorism, a school shooting, and meth addiction. I feel like in many ways this is my most upbeat book because, (laughs) which is not raising the bar too high, I understand, but it is a book about wonder as well. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.